delighted to be with you this morning. I always consider it a pleasure and rejoice greatly in the privilege of sharing the Word of God. And it's been so precious to come and spend time with some precious friends, to get to know new friends, and to see how God is working in your midst here. Today is April the 1st, All Fool's Day. Madeline Murray O'Hare and her group of atheists in America have been in sending petitions and petitioning our government for a national holiday for atheists, and I've recommended this day for her. I think it would be quite fitting for those who declare there is no God, because the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I'm delighted to see that you're progressing through growth of your building, preparing for more people to be ministered unto. That's marvelous. I'm delighted. I praise God for churches that are growing, churches that are reaching people and meeting needs in the hearts and lives of people. I'm also much aware of our time. I've been told that I can preach as long as I want to, but you folks go home at 12. And so... uh, I even noticed a little trap door here that, (laughs) leave that out of your new building. (laughs) All right. All right. It's such a delight. I don't want to take any more time just talking, but I want to share with you, uh, oh, about four or five, six verses from Joshua chapter 1, and uh, just a few words that I trust will enrich your life, will... uh, Burden your heart for a deeper walk, a deeper uh, understanding, and a deeper knowing of our precious Lord Jesus. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1 of Joshua. Now, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, even as I said unto Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, under the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your coast. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. For as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Be strong and of a good courage, for unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. You know, as I have the privilege to travel around and meet people, and uh, I primarily minister to Christians and to the church, the body of Christ, and uh, a lot of Christians that I meet and, and get to know are kind of like a man that I met one time who comes home to find that he had inadvertently left his faucet on in his bathtub and, and he finds his house flooded. There's water all over the place, two or three inches of water. And so frantically he grabs a mop and he begins to mop and, and uh, he sweeps out water but the bathtub faucet's still running. It's wide open. But after a few frenzied swipes, he he begins to realize he's really making no progress with this thing. He's not really getting anywhere. Uh, And so he goes out and he gets a bigger mop. And he mops a little bit harder. But still, there's no success. The water's still running uh, out of the bathroom, bathtub, faucet. 
determined that he should live. I mean, he was ordained of God from before the foundation of the world to live in a victoriously dry house. And so he enrolls in an EMT seminar. Uh, that's effective mopping techniques. And, and he receives a diploma with a gold seal. And he goes back home. And once again, he, he wades kind of frenetically into the battle mopping. But still, the water pours out faster than he can possibly mop it up. Well, what do we do next? Well, he invites a professional mopper to come over, and the professional mopper comes over for a week of intensive mopping. And at the end of the week, their success is measured by the number of buckets full of water that they've managed to throw out uh, of the window or sweep out. But you understand more has rushed in uh, to take the place of that that has been thrown out. So as the situation worsens, worsens rather, uh, he rededicates himself to better and faster mopping and vows he'll never again leave the faucet on and once more takes up the mop. But the bathtub faucet is still running. Now, weary and waterlogged about this time, he finally concludes that God never really intended for him to live in a dry house. And so he buys a pair of galoshes and a waterbed, and he settles down to live the rest of his life in a flooded house. Now, beloved, I'm not against mopping. I want you to understand that, okay? But if the faucet's still running and the water is still gushing forth, you understand how futile it is to grab a mop in a bucket and begin mopping up the water. Do you understand that? It's a waste of time. And the solution is ridiculously simple, isn't it? Go turn off the faucet. Stop the flow of water at its source. Now, how am I going to apply that to us today? What does it mean to us? Well, I think it means this. The water that we find on the floor are the sins, S-I-N-S, that we find in our daily lives as we walk through a world that is steeped in sin. And we find all around us in this thing we call life, which is not really life, it's really a, time, a form of death, but we find all around us that the faucet is open, the faucet of self is open, and sins keep gushing forth sometimes faster than we can mop them up. You understand, don't you, that self can produce sins faster than you can mop? Did you know that? Now, if you don't know that, you will know that as you continue in your Christian life, because it's true. You can mark it down and underline it. The secret of victory over sins, beloved, is not better mopping techniques, but rather it's victory over self. A lot of Christian people and a lot of the Christian church, no matter what they call themselves, have been busily mopping up sins when they ought to be mortifying self or putting to death the self-life in order that they might live in that, quote, victoriously dry house, unquote. A lot of believers have even come to the point of throwing in the towel or rather the mop and have settled down to live the best they can in a flooded house thinking this is the way it's supposed to be. This is normal Christian living. Normal Christian living. And so they settle down and live the best they can. But, beloved, I believe that God has made provision for His people. God has made provision for those who have been birthed into His family, for those who are now heirs in His kingdom. God has made provision for us. He's made provision for a life of daily, continuous, almost constant victory. It's the birthright of every Christian. Do you believe that? It's the birthright of every Christian, and we ought not to settle for anything less. Amen? 
We ought not to settle for anything less. Well, what is God's way to victory? Well, it's not the way we might imagine. You see, man's way is by mopping, catching those sins as they flow forth and dealing with those sins. We train and we dedicate and we rededicate, but that's not God's way. God has only one way of dealing with sin, and that's the way of death. He deals with the sinner. When you deal with the sinner, you shut the faucet off, and and the sin then is taken care of. It'll take care of itself. Now, in our text, you understand that Israel is poised at the Jordan River. They're getting ready now to make their trek into the promised land, that trek that they should have made, God intended for them to make, 40 years prior to this time. And so now they're posed, uh, poised at the river. Moses, the great servant of God, excuse me, of God is dead. And Joshua has stepped forth to take Moses' place. And God is declaring his faithfulness to this new servant that's now going to lead his children uh, over the last barrier that stands between them and the promised land. Now, 40 years earlier, that older generation had stood right here. They had stood right here. You might say almost this very spot, they had escaped Egypt by crossing the Red Sea, and now this new generation must enter Canaan by crossing this Jordan River. And it seems as though the parting of the sea, the Red Sea, for the past generation was the way out of slavery of Egypt. But the parting of the Jordan is the way into the promised inheritance. That first crossing was an exit from bondage when God set his people free. That second crossing is the entrance into blessing, and that's where God intended for his people to go. God never intended for the children of Israel to spend 40 years in a wilderness learning how to win battles so they could fight another battle the next day. God never intended for for them to do that. God intended for them to move right into Canaan, right into the promised land. The first crossing was from bondage. The second, an entrance to blessing. In the first experience, the people were saved from something. In the second, they are saved to something. The years of wandering in defeat in the desert, in the wilderness, are now over. They're at an end, and they're about to enter into the absolute fullness of the blessings that God had in mind for them when he initially brought them out of Egypt. Now, what spiritual significance does the crossing of the Jordan have for us today? I I believe this. I believe the crossing of the Jordan for us today marks the end of the self-life and the beginning of the Christ life. It marks the entrance into the promised land. Just as our salvation experience marks the, the, uh, 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 the freeing of, from the bondage of Egypt, if you will. So the crossing of Jordan marks for us the beginning of a brand new experience. It marks the end of the self-life. It marks the beginning of Christ simply being himself in us and in me. As the Red Sea was the judgment of God upon sin, so the Jordan River is a judgment of God upon self. And in the language of the New Testament, crossing the Jordan is entering into the truth that I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this life that I now live in this body, I live only by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me, Galatians 2.20. According to Hebrews 4, the scripture says we must cease from our own works, which are the struggles of the flesh, and we must enter into his rest, enter into that which he prepared for us. 
Now there's a significant difference, beloved, in the crossing of the Red Sea and the crossing of the Jordan River. And it's brought out to us pretty graphically in the 114th Psalm, verse 3 and verse 5. It says in verse 3 of Psalm 114, the sea saw it and fled, the Jordan was driven back. And then in verse 5 it says, What aileth thee, O thou sea, that thou fleddest, thou Jordan, that thou was driven back? You see, it, it, what it's, it's saying is simply this, The Red Sea saw Israel coming and fled from before her. The Red Sea ran, in other words, from, uh, from Israel and from God's people. But the Jordan didn't run. The Jordan had to be driven back by the very power of God. Something else had to happen. The Jordan had to be turned back. You see, evidently there was strong opposition to the crossing of the Jordan River that was not present at the crossing of the Red Sea. Because the Jordan had to be driven back, but the Red Sea fled. It, you see, what that says to me is that it's far easier, or was far easier, for God to get His people out of bondage in Egypt than it was to get them into the Promised Land, into Canaan, in victory. A whole lot easier to get them out of bondage than to get them into victory. A whole lot easier just to escape the chains than it is to walk out here in freedom, expressing the freedom that is really ours. And it's always easier, beloved, to get a sinner out of Egypt than to get a Christian into Canaan. It's always easier. In a sense, you see, evangelism is easier than edification. It's always easier. Uh, salvation is simpler than sanctification. Deliverance is easier than discipling. But, beloved, listen, talk to your wives. It's one thing to bring a child into the world, but it's quite another to bring that child up in the world. Rearing children is a longer and more difficult process than bearing children. Now, I remember vividly the birth of our first daughter. My wife had had a pretty fair pregnancy, and uh, in those days where we were at that particular time, when we took her to the hospital, they took her down a long, long corridor and she passed through some doors, and I didn't see her again until after the baby was born. They put me in another room. It's a good thing they did. I wouldn't have been worth a flip back there anyway, okay? But, you see, in that process, and I never felt more helpless. She had a day-long day, uh, labor process and on into the night and a complicated kind of delivery. And I was helpless. I never felt more frustrated or anxious. And I really believe that travail is the right word to describe what a mother goes through at birth. Then I remember the time when our second daughter was born. We had twins, and the Lord took one home. But when our second daughter was born, I vowed I was going to stay with my wife through the whole process. Maybe some of you have done that. Went right into the delivery room, put the old green gown on backwards, you know, and those kind of things, and, and uh, walked right in. I vowed I was going to do that. And I stayed with her while she was in that prep room or whatever it is they call it and I held her hand and she's her, her labor pains are getting closer and closer together and I'm getting sicker and sicker and uh, weaker and weaker and when they finally came to wheel her into the, the regular delivery room where, where she was going to give birth there was, I, I couldn't handle that now maybe you could you, maybe you're stronger than I am I had to run from that that's travail brethren that's travail amen Tell them, ladies. <laughs> you know it is. You know it is. But you see, the travail doesn't stop there, does it? 
the travail doesn't stop with birth. You see, while the travail of birthing lasts only a short time, the travail of parenthood lasts a lifetime. It never ends. Not very long ago, a 60-year-old father came to me with his heart breaking over the rebellion of his son. His son was 39 with his own wife and children, and yet this 39-year-old son that was living his own life was still a source of surveil to this godly, loving father. And I remember thinking, Lord, is there never a time when we're free of the responsibilities of parenthood? You know, you'd think that when your children got to be adults and they're married, they're out on their own, you'd have nothing more to worry about. You know, just get in the car and travel. But, beloved, as long as your children are your children, and they always are, there's going to be travail. Now, in the same way, getting into the promised land is far more difficult than getting out of Egypt. Not that it has to be that way, but we die hard. We struggle a lot. We struggle a lot. You see, most of us want a promised land without a Jordan to cross. We want all the victories of the Christian life without understanding the death of our self-life. We want all of our house to be dry, if you will, even while the faucet's still running. But every promised land, beloved, has its Jordan, and there is no following of Jesus into his fullness without taking up our cross and saying no to self, because only as we die can we live in Christ. Someone wrote, O soul of mine, must I surrender? See myself, the crucified, turn from all of earth's ambition, that thou mayest be satisfied. And beloved, indeed, that's exactly what we must do, because death has always been God's method. In the very first chapter of human history, God dealt with sin by death when he clothed Adam and he clothed Eve with the skins of an animal. When Israel murmured against Moses, the Lord sent fiery serpents into their midst and dealt with their problem by death. Paul uses the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians to point out that death was God's exclusive way of treating the sin of his people. And he summarizes that by saying, now these things happen to them as an example to us whom the ends of the ages have come. Now, even after Israel entered Canaan, beloved, God's method remained the same. When they were shamefully defeated at Ai because of the sin of Achan, who was put to death? Achan and his entire family. Only death would remedy the situation of sin that the people were under. And if you go back to Numbers 21, that episode of the fiery serpent situation, you remember God's strange prescription there for snake bite? Never heard anything like it. He commanded Moses to fashion a serpent of brass and fasten it to a pole and lift it up in the midst of the people. And those who looked upon that in faith were saved. Why didn't he give Moses instruction on how to treat snake bite? Because you see, snake bite wasn't the problem. The snake was the problem. And God dealt directly with the snake. Now hang on to that thought and listen to the words of Jesus in, in John chapter 3 and verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lift, lifted up. And Jesus then is describing his crucifixion as a serpent being lifted up. And that tells us two things. Number one, the brazen serpent in the wilderness was a preview of the cross. And number two, Jesus' death was was a serpent's death. Now the serpent was made of brass, which is a symbol of judgment. 
What were the people dying from? From the serpents. And the only way that they could be saved was by believing the very thing that was killing them had been judged and condemned by God. The serpents were not excused or forgiven or defanged. They were crushed under the heel of God's judgment. And that's the only way God can have fellowship with man. Even though all of man's sins may be taken away, man remains a sinful being, and God can have no fellowship with a sinful being. The problem with man, you see, is not what he has done, but what he is. The problem with man is his depraved, fallen nature, and that nature is irredeemable. It resists every effort to improve it. It's immune to every type of treatment designed to cure it. Now, it's crucial that we understand this. In salvation, beloved, God does not change. He does not convert. He does not cure the old nature. That's not what salvation is all about. Because the old nature is a terminal case. It is doomed to die. And the only provision God ever made for it is that it die. The sinful of man, uh, excuse me, the sinful nature of man never changes, can never change, and will never change. And there's only one way that God can deal with that and put it to death. Only then can God have fellowship with man. Now listen. The old nature resists all efforts to put it to death. C.S. Lewis wrote a little classic entitled The Great Divorce, and, and he speaks to this issue in a confrontation there between an angel and, and a diehard sinner that he calls a ghost. In describing that, he says this, and I quote from this point, What sat on his shoulder was a little red lizard, and it was twitching its tail like a whip and whispering things in his ear. He turned his head to the reptile with a snarl of impatience and said, Shut up, I tell you. And it wagged its tail and continued to whisper. Off so soon, said a voice. Yes, I'm off, said the sinner ghost. Thanks for all your hospitality, but it's no good, you see. I told this little chap, indicating the lizard, he'd have to be quiet if he came, and he insisted on coming. Of course, you know, his, his kind and his stuff won't do here. I realize that, but he won't stop, and so I'll just have to go home. Well, would you like me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit, an angel as I now understood. Of course I would, said the sinner ghost. Then I'll kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, now wait, look out, you're burning me, keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Well, don't you want him killed, said the angel. Well, you didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. Well, it's the only way, said the angel. <clears throat> Excuse me whose burning hands was now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, well, that's a further question, you see, and I'm quite open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it. Because up here, it's just embarrassing. Well, may I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. Please, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really, don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks ever so much. Well, may I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I'll be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process of death would be far better than just killing it now. The gradual process is of no use at all. Don't you think so? Well, I'll think that over and I'll think over all you said to me very carefully. Honestly, Will. In fact, I'd let you kill it now, but as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling frightfully well today. And it would be silly to do it now. I'd need to be in good health for that operation. Some other day, perhaps, I'll let you kill it. 
There is no other day. All days are present now. Get back, you're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. Well, that's not really so. Why? You're hurting me right now. I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Oh, I know you think I'm a coward, but it isn't that. Really, it isn't. I say, let me run back by tonight's bus and get an opinion from my own doctor, and I'll come again the first moment I can. Ah, but this moment contains all moments. Oh, why are you torturing me? You're jeering at me. How can I let you tear me to pieces? If you wanted to help me, why didn't you kill the thing without asking me before I knew? It would be all over by now if you had. Because I can't kill it against your will. It's impossible. Do I have your permission? And the angel's hands were almost closed on the lizard, but not quite. Have I your permission, said the angel to the sinner ghost. Oh, I know it'll kill me. Oh, but it won't. But supposing it did. You know, you're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature called self. Called self. You see, beloved, the cross saves the sinner because the cross slays the sinner. There's a death process. And with the cross, God doesn't merely take away the sins of the sinner. He takes the sinner out of the way. To remove the sin would only leave the source undealt with, unchanged, and would reduce the cross to nothing more than just another mop in a mopping up operation. And that's not God's program. That's not God's purpose in the salvation experience. Much more than that occurred at Calvary. So I say to you, not only did Jesus die on the cross, bearing away all of my sin, beloved, and yours if you've trusted him as your Savior, but I died there also, you died there also. That sinner that you were, that person you were in Adam, is now dead. It died at the cross. Calvary gets rid of both the sin and the sinner. Praise God. I've been crucified with Christ, Paul said, Galatians 2.20. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, Galatians 5.24. If you have died with Christ, Colossians 2.20. For you have died and your life is hid with Christ in God, Colossians 3.3. 3. Knowing this, that our old self, that man we used to be in Adam, has been, past tense, crucified with him, Romans 6.6. 6. This principle, beloved, of life out of death is taught by Jesus in John 12, 24, when he said, Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. You see, death is a prerequisite of discipleship. Death is a requisite of discipleship. And if anyone wishes to come after me, saith the Lord, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, we usually interpret that verse over there in Luke to mean that, well, if we're willing to serve Jesus, we pick up our cross and we follow him. And the mind kind of conjures up images of a, a man teaching Sunday school class with his cumbersome cross slung over his back or a, a teenager on a corner handing out gospel tracts on a, uh, balancing a cross on his shoulder. But, beloved, a cross isn't for carrying. A cross is for crucifying. Jesus wasn't bearing a cross when he preached the Sermon on the Mount. 
Jesus wasn't bearing a cross when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus wasn't bearing a cross when he cleansed ten lepers. The only time that Jesus took up the cross was when he was ready to die and was heading for Calvary. Then he took up his cross. The cross is not for carrying. The cross is for crucifying. The cross is a death instrument. It's an instrument of execution. Always has been. Always will be. God said it in his son. Jesus says to us then, Do you want to follow me? Pick up your cross and let's go. And obediently we lay the cross on our shoulders and we say, Where are we going, Lord? Where are we going to go? We're going to go to the seaside and, and preach? Is that where we're going to go? I like that. We're going to go to the hospital and heal somebody? I like that. Hey, Lord, let's go raise someone from the dead. Man, I can't wait to see us do that. And Jesus says, No. We're not going into those places. We're going to a hill outside the city to die on that cross you carry. Oh, but Lord, I'd much rather carry it to the seaside. I'd much rather go teach or, or, or let's carry it to the cemetery and raise some from the, someone from the dead or, or just anywhere, Lord. But I'd, I'd rather not die on it. Cross is good for one thing only, the master answers. To be crucified upon. If you follow me, you must follow me to Calvary because that's where I'm going. As we're going to see, Jesus, following Jesus is a matter of daily affirming our place of death with him. And that's called reckoning. Now, one more verse let me give you. John 12, 32. And I, if I be lifted up, Jesus said, I will draw all men unto me. Amen. Now, Jesus is not referring in John 12, 32 to preaching or evangelistic invitations. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about Jesus being lifted up in song. He's not talking about Jesus being lifted up in preaching. He's not talking about Jesus being lifted up in witnessing. He's not talking about Jesus being lifted up in any other form or fashion other than lifted up in death. And when he draws all men, he draws all men to him. His death. Now, now, l let me put all this together. Let me say, uh, Jesus simply says that, that he's going to draw men not to kneel at the cross, but to get on the cross and die with him. Now, now if, we, if we take two headings and put that all together, we would say, first of all, our death with Christ was established at the cross and saves us from the penalty of sin. Would you say amen? Are you there? Some of you are. Let's establish a time of death. After a service one evening, the man rushed up to me and he said, Hey, you've got to help me. I've been trying to die to self, but I just can't. I've asked the Lord to crucify me, but nothing happens. How do you die? I said, You don't. He said, I don't understand. That's what you've been talking about. I said, Well, your problem is you're trying to do something that's already been done. It's already been accomplished. You, you, you see, you're already dead. You died 2,000 years ago with Christ on the cross. You can't kill a dead man. You simply accept the fact of your death. Paul established the time of death in Romans 6, 6 when he said, Knowing this, our old self was crucified with him. And the word crucified is the Greek erics signifying a once for all happening. It's something already accomplished, beloved. Our crucifixion is an accomplished fact. We don't make it happen. We simply enter into the reality of something's already happened. 
And, and that little preposition with is a key. If we died with Christ, then we had to die the same time he died. When did he die? 2,000 years ago. You see, God views every person as either in Adam, dead in trespasses and sin, or in Christ, a holy righteous saint. And there's no in-between. There's no partials. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. That's the way God sees you. That's your position, in Adam or in Christ. And if he sees you in Adam, he sees you dead in sin. If he sees you in Christ, he sees you dead to sin. Now, at this very moment, if we're believers, beloved, God sees us dead. He sees us buried. He sees us risen again with Christ Jesus. And it's that fact that saves me from the penalty of my sin. Since I'm dead, I can never be brought to trial to answer for my sins. Suppose that you suddenly heard a, a police siren out here running down the street, and you rush outside to see what happens, and, and you find you discover a grocery store has been robbed, and you, you push through the crowd, and you, you get a hold of the policeman that's there, and you say to him, sir, have you, do, you, do you have any evidence? Do you know who might have done this? And the policeman says, yes, we have ample evidence to prove that George Washington committed this crime. George Washington, that's right. Well, now, wait a minute. You mean the George Washington who chopped down the cherry tree, who threw the dollar over the Delaware, who later became the first president of the United States? Yeah, that's him. And we can prove he did it. Well, sir, uh, you're wrong. <laughs> you see, it couldn't have been him. He could not have had part in this. Why? Well, because George Washington died in 1799, and that's 191 years before this crime was committed. And do you realize, beloved, in Christ Jesus, you actually died before you committed any of your sins? And so when the devil, the great accuser of the brethren, approaches God and charges Bob Toby with a sin, you know what God does? God looks up my record and says to old Slewfoot, no, it couldn't have been him. He's been dead 2,000 years. He couldn't have done it. He's been set free from that. He's washed in the blood, and he's just as clean, clean, clean as Adam was before he ever sinned. You see, our death with Christ makes possible Paul's statement in Romans 6, 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you. Sin shall not be the master over you, because you're not under law, you're under grace. You see, death terminates relationships. Did you know that? It removes a person from the realm of his former activity. Now, here's a slave under the absolute dominion of his master. His master tells him when to go to bed, when to get out of bed, when to eat, when to sleep, and when to work, when to marry, whom to marry, and how many children to have. The power of life and death is in the hands of the master. He must obey. He has no, absolutely no choice, but one day he dies. Now let the master come and command him. Now let the master stand over his bed and shout, get up. He's dead to the will of the Master. He's died to all that, and that death has set him free from the bondage of slavery that he was in. And so, beloved, I say to you, the Christian is free. Not free to sin, but free not to sin. The one point of contact sin had with the Christian, the self-life has been nailed to the cross. The one door of entry has been barred. The one accessible harbor has been blockaded. But, you say, if all that's true, why am I still living as though I I'd never died. The unhappy fact is you are. And that brings me to the next and most important point. You see, we start in heaven and we end up on earth. The truths that we get in Scripture 
are both heaven truths and earth truths. And this truth is first, you see, positional in heaven, and then it's practical down here. We can live it. It's real for us. It's not someday pie in the sky. You see, first we state the truth, then we relate the truth. Every doctrine of Scripture from the Word of God must be squeezed into shoe leather and brought down onto the stage of daily living. Otherwise, it's not worth a whole lot in our lives. Now, in Colossians 3 and verse 3, Paul tells us we're dead. And then in verse 5, he tells us to consider ourselves to be dead. It kind of sounds like double talk. But the explanation is simple if we understand the principle of appropriation. In verse 3, Paul states a theological fact. That's the viewpoint of heaven. You're dead. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're dead. I mean, that's just a fact. And then in verse 5, Paul tells us to live like it. Since you're dead, live like you're dead. Now, that's an absolute. Your death is an absolute. We're dead. We're dead. You see, but it must be appropriated. Your death with Christ must not only be recognized as a fact, it must be reckoned by faith, which brings me to this last thing, and that is that our death with Christ is experienced by reckoning, and that saves me from the power of sin. In the first ten verses of Romans 6, Paul established the, the, the fact of my death with Christ. And in the eleventh verse, he makes a very practical application, telling me how to make this theological fact a real experience, get it out of heaven and get it into earth. He says, likewise, reckon you yourself to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the key word is reckon. Now, beloved, that's a bookkeeping term. I'm sure you already know that. It's a term used for keeping accounts and means literally to consider uh, or to account. Bookkeeping is based on facts, not fables. Those of you that are auditors and, and uh, uh, accountants know about that. Uh, it, it can't be based on feelings. It doesn't matter how you feel about this line of columns. They must add up and they must balance across. Has to. Has to be factual. And beloved, the fact is you're dead. Now you consider it so. And I want to emphasize again, our death is a fact. You know, a lot of believers have difficulty at this point because they kind of think we're supposed to believe ourselves into death and that our dying depends upon my believing or my faith. Christian, listen, you are dead. You're dead whether you believe that or not. You're dead whether you reckon it so or not. The Bible isn't asking you to close your eyes to a fact and act like something is so when it isn't so. The Bible says you're dead, and if God says you're dead, it's a fact, it's so, you may as well accept it and enjoy it. Amen? Uh, you, you know, you say, I don't know how to reckon. Well, yes, you do. You just don't know you do. In, in the first place, you see, you had to reckon in order to get saved, in order to become a Christian. You had to reckon. One day you read in the Word of God that Jesus died for your sins, and you chose to believe that. And, and, and uh, were you there when He died? Were, were you there? Did you see this thing happen? Do you have any kind of evidence that this thing happened? You weren't there. But you believed it. You believed it. You weren't an eyewitness, but you simply believed it. You considered it so. You counted on it. You believed the fact. And because you believed the fact, God made the fact a fact in you, and you were saved. Amen? That's reckoning. That's reckoning. Now, the same Bible that tells you that Jesus died, even though you weren't there to witness it, tells you that you died with him, even though you weren't there to experience it. And so what do you do? You consider it so. You believe the fact. That's reckoning. 
So you had to reckon on Christ's death to be saved from your sins. And you must reckon on your death to be saved from self. You've been dead 2,000 years, beloved. It's high time you had a funeral and got this thing over with. God wants to as quickly as possible. Romans 6.11 reveals a twofold reckoning, a negative and a positive. He says, reckon you yourself to be dead unto sin. That's negative. But alive unto God, that's positive. And if you look at negative first, Luke 9.23 tells us how to do that. Jesus said, if anyone... After me, what do we do? Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. You see, first we must choose against ourselves. The power of sin that indwells you is always talking to you, insisting that you look out for yourself, insisting that you demand your rights, insisting that you live your life just exactly the way you please. No one is going to tell me what to do. And, and you see, we want to live our own way. And so the first step in appropriating the victory of Calvary is say, to say no to sin, to say no to self, Meet every suggestion from sin and self with a not I but Christ. It's not I but Christ who lives in me. The Greek present tense of that verb indicates that this is to be a continuous process. It's a habit of life. Not I but Christ is not just one time wrapped up in a package. It's a habit of life. What comes through your life? Praise God, not I but Christ. What kind of temptation do you face? It's not I but Christ. What kind of difficulty? are you in? It's not I, but Christ. What kind of damage is being done to you? It's not I, but Christ. Do you understand me? Oh, beloved, listen. We need to also consent to our death and take up His cross by an act of our will or take up our cross, which is His cross. We accept our death and we willingly take our place on the cross. We're dead, but we usually don't want to be buried. We could keep postponing our funeral. No one likes funerals. But you understand, don't you, that having an unburied body lying around can create a pretty unpleasant situation? What can a dead body do but stink? And beloved, listen, most of the unpleasant situations in our homes, in our churches, in our businesses, wherever we go as a Christian, most of them are caused by dead people who haven't been buried. Who have been buried. Still carrying the stench of that corpse around. It's a daily reckoning. It's a daily affirming of the death of our plans, our wishes, our will. It's a daily affirmation that I have died. But we don't stop with negative reckoning. We go on to positive. Not only are we to reckon ourselves dead indeed unto sin, but to reckon ourselves alive to God. That means the body is to be used for one thing only, and that's to glorify God. The body then becomes that channel through which the will of God flows, through which the life of God flows. Paul goes on to say in Romans 6, 13, Don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20, You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God. In your body. In positive reckoning, we choose in advance God's will for the rest of our life. So that our body, this body, beloved, in which I walk around, becomes a display case through which he can manifest himself.
It also means that we count upon the life of Christ within us. In Colossians 3, 3 and 4, Paul says we're dead, that Christ is our life. Now there's a paradox, dead but alive. But the life within us is not our own, that's dead and buried. It's the life of Christ dwelling in us through the Holy Spirit. All right? Paul says he's been crucified with Christ, nevertheless he lives. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. If you knocked at the door of Paul's heart and asked who lives there, the answer would come back, Jesus. And the same is true of every Christian. When Satan knocks at the door of your heart, beloved, rather than allowing the power of sin or self to answer the door, reckon self to be dead, allow Jesus to go to the door. That'll scare the old serpent away. The wrong person answers the door. I've got the wrong address here. You know, I heard Stephen Alford once share a motto that he said helps him face each day with confidence. He said, quote, There is no demand made upon my life that is not a demand made upon the life of Christ within me. End quote. And that's true. Let me illustrate it and close with this. There are 14.7 pounds of pressure per square inch being exerted on each one of us. Now, I know you all deal in meters and liters and those kinds of things, but I don't understand those. So you understand inches and pounds, okay? 14.7 pounds of pressure per square inch that's, that's pushing against me from this Earth's atmosphere. Obviously, the amount of pressure is determined by how many square inches we are, okay? So the smaller we are, maybe it goes down a little bit. But nevertheless, there's tons of pressure pushing against us at this very moment. What keeps us from being crushed to death? Well, there's an equal pressure inside of us that's pushing outward. And because that equal pressure inside of us, that corresponding pressure, that neutralizes that outside pressure. Beloved, in the same way, no matter how much pressure the world, the flesh, and the devil throws against us, Christians, believers in Jesus Christ, we have overcome them because the overcomer lives his life through us. And his life in me is more than sufficient to neutralize all the pressure from without. John said it this way in 1 John 4, 4. Greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. Now, beloved, just for a moment, or just in a moment, I want us to pray. But I would just like to ask you a very personal question. Do you know that you've died? Do you know it? Do you have knowledge of it because the book of knowledge tells you that? And then secondly, can you choose with your will to believe it? Can you choose with your will to believe it? Why do you believe it? Because you feel it? No, because God said it. And if God said it, it's so. It's so. And once you choose to believe it, can you act upon it? Can you walk out into the world through which you walk, declaring it's not I, but Christ? So when the world looks at you, they see less and less of you, as John Baptist said, and more and more of Jesus being expressed in your life. Let's pray. Father, what a precious blessing you are. How marvelous and wonderful to know that you reside in us, that you face the world through us, that you face the flesh and the devil through us, and that we're more than conquerors because you are. 
How delightful to know that truth. But how much more delightful, our Father, to choose to believe it and walk it out, experiencing all the love, joy, and peace that you are in us. Be that in this great church. May they come more and more to a fuller and fuller understanding of the reality of Christ in them, the hope of glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Brother Pastor.